Uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 25 for our scripture reading. Let's stand together. It's also on page 8 of your worship guide. Hear God's word. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spots. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. We're considering the teachings of Peter in his first epistle in light of the man who he was and how his calling came upon him. Jesus said to an uneducated fisherman, follow me. And indeed, Peter did. And he would go through rejecting Jesus, denying Jesus, being forgiven and restored by Jesus, becoming the rock upon whom Jesus intended to build his church and then ultimately writes, probably later toward the end of his life, uh, a letter to churches that he had been involved with, unpacking what it means to follow Jesus. And as we aspire to be followers of Jesus, we then come to this letter and say, okay, what does it mean to hear Peter's words and to be shaped as a community like the very communities that he pastored, that he oversaw? Well, part of that is understanding the context or the reason for which the letter is written. Why is Peter at this time choosing to write this letter and to write these words? Well, there is such an emphasis on suffering and faithfulness in the context of 1 Peter that we know those churches are beginning to come under persecution, that people who are choosing to believe in Jesus are suffering for that decision to identify with him. Now, some commentators like to think that this is Nero's persecution, but it's probably not. We're a long ways from Rome, and we have no evidence that Nero's persecution, which was fierce, that really went outside the boundaries of Rome. Furthermore, it seems to be a little bit early, and Peter's view of the empire is rather lofty at this time. Right? Later on, he's going to say that you should obey and honor the emperor, right? something that the author of Revelation is very unwilling to say. Right? That kind of change will happen as a result of how, uh, how strongly and how violently the empire will come to stand against Christianity. So if it's not Nero's persecution, what is the persecution that we're actually seeing on the ground? What's happening? 
Well, it's probably something very much like this. Imagine a town. Imagine Rockwell, but in an ancient context. And everyone in the town essentially worships one of the Greek gods, let's say Artemis, for sake of argument. But you and your family have heard the message of Jesus. You've heard this good news of a Jewish Messiah that has come and has extended the grace of the living God to the whole world. And you're compelled by this story. So you begin to learn what it means to worship Jesus and identify with him. As a result of that, your family starts to pull away. You don't go to the same festivals. You don't worship at the same temple. You don't make the same sacrifices. You may be a little bit more uncomfortable with your kids playing with certain other kids. These things are going to start to, your life's going to start to change by identifying with Jesus. And everything's going kind of okay. People are like, well, that seems like a crazy thing to believe in, but that's up to you. There are lots of gods in the Greek pantheon. But then it stops raining. It stops raining for a while, and things start to dry out, and businesses start to fail, and people are thirsty and hungry because the crops can't grow. Well, what's going on? Artemis is offended. Someone has made the god of our town angry, and no longer is she looking out for us. So what has made Artemis angry? Well, What about these people who have stopped worshiping Artemis and worship a foreign god? And suddenly you have a target, a scapegoat, someone to aim your anger and frustration at, and someone to hold accountable. The reason we are suffering, the reason Artemis is angry, is because you are identifying with Jesus Christ. You are choosing to worship him. So we are now not going to frequent your business. We are going to ignore your family. We're going to cut you off from the rest of the family. And this is the pressure that's starting to bear down on Christian families in the ancient world, ones that Peter had planted as a result of identifying with Jesus. And Peter writes into this situation saying, do not forget that the living God has made a covenant with you. He has, through great expense, he has made promises to you that he will keep. But you have a responsibility because a covenant relationship is a two-way street. And though God has affected your salvation in Jesus Christ, you better believe that that does not mean that you can live any way you want to live, nor that you can turn your back on him simply because he isn't serving your purposes. And this is where Peter started last week as we began the letter. He starts at salvation. You have to understand that God has rescued you, that according to the foreknowledge of God and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, you have been saved. And by being saved, that makes you both elect, you are chosen out of the love of God, and an exile, meaning that this world will never again be your permanent home. You are always a stranger and an alien in it. Sometimes I worry, I think, to the degree we feel comfortable in this place, it's probably a dangerous sign, a sign of the degree to which we have co-opted and agreed not to make Christianity or following Jesus a big deal so that we can fit in and not be ostracized or cut off from the society around us. Right? These are the decisions facing the churches to which Peter writes. And he begins by saying, you have, to, you have to understand the wonderful salvation that God has wrought for you in Jesus Christ. That you, that you are privileged in the entire history of the world and cosmos. You've been made child. 
Your life will be eternal with him. But Peter's just saying that so he can get busy with them, right? Because as he starts out in verse 13 this week, there is a huge whopping therefore. I've told you all about this salvation so that therefore you may understand how you are expected to live as a result of this salvation. And Peter is going to lay down four what we call imperatives or commands or exhortations or challenges. Right? Four aspects to say, if you understand your salvation, it doesn't really matter what's happening around you. I'm telling you, you have to be busy about four things. And this is the way that you're going to navigate life as a Christian and in the church. And it's as true for us today as it was for Peter in his day. Those four things are that we would uh, gird up our minds, number one. Number two, that we would not be conformed. Number three, that we would fear God. And number four, that we would love one another. All right, so you have to gird up your minds. You have to not be conformed. You have to fear God. And you have to love one another. All right, so let's take each one in turn. Number one, prepare. Uh, Peter writes that the, the people are to prepare their minds for action. Now literally, it's, uh, Peter is saying... I want you to gird up the loins of your mind for action. And in uh, the Middle East, even today, you can often see men wearing a shirt that goes down to their, their shins or their ankles. Now, that's a little bit awkward when you want to do some real work. All right, you want to go work in the yard or you want to go run and play something. What do you have to do? You have to take up your shirt. Right? You have to gird it up and tuck it into your pants. And now you're ready to do some real labor. What Peter is saying is you have to gird up the, your mind, right? You have to get, prepare yourself for action. You have to be intentional that the shaping of your mind, the focusing of your mind, and what your mind's eye is intent upon is something that you must be intent about. Prepare for action. This is what's required to live out your salvation. Because if you're not prepared for action, if you're living naively, or if you just don't want to be bothered... Inevitably, you are increasingly consumed by the culture in which you exist. Peter says you must be ready mentally. He commands them to be sober-minded. That a cloudy mind is not something that is befitting a Christian. Whether that's cloudy with alcohol or cloudy with the lust of the flesh or the lust of the eyes or the boastful pride of life, there are no shortage of things that would make us unfocused that would cause us, our gaze to not, and our mind not to be prepared for action. What are you doing to prepare your mind for action? Does the time you spend in, wor- in the Word and in prayer and in fellowship, does that compete with, say, the time you spend watching TV? You spend more time escaping or doing what you want to do rather than what you really know God has called you to be doing. There's an intentionality that is required of us that we would participate and live out our salvation, that we would prepare for our actions. A friend recently told me a story of a salesman who was very good at his job, but showed up to meet some new clients and was very drunk. The sale not only did not go well, but he alienated the potential very large clients. And when word got back to the company that he had alienated the potentially very large clients, he lost his job very quickly. He was not prepared... His mind was not prepared for the action 
for which he was called to. You have been called to action. You have not been called to sit back and to wait until Jesus shows up to take you home. You've been called to live a life of what? Obedience. Remember, that's what Peter said our salvation is for in the very place by which we feel out our relationship with God. Peter goes on in unpacking this idea of our minds, and he says that our hope is to be fully set on the grace that would be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Which is one of the mysteries of faith in general, of hope really in anything, is that our future informs our present. This is actually almost always the case. I don't know if you think about it, but we're constantly making decisions on a day-to-day basis because of something we're envisioning for ourselves in the future. Whether that be the way we want our family to look, or the way we want our house to be, or the way we want to succeed at our job. And all those things are an envisioning of the future, and it informs what we prioritize now in the present, what decisions we make. So as part of the gaze of your mind toward the future, toward standing before the risen Christ, and yes, we'll get to judgment in a moment, something that has to be minded, but that God's grace at this point is poured out on you. And do you want to stand there in shame and guilt? Or do you want to stand there excited to meet the risen Lord? If I want to, um, you know, if I lock my mind on the hope that a pretty girl, right, will, will give me attention, that she would say yes to an invitation to go out, then what am I going to do? I'm going to make decisions like buying flowers and writing letters and preparing my mind to be intent about pursuing her so that I might see that outcome realized. If your gaze, if your mind is set upon the grace that is to be revealed when Jesus Christ stands physically present in your midst, then you're going to be making certain decisions now that prepare you for that day. That's number one. Gird up your minds. Prepare them for action. Number two, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. You are called to be holy as God is holy. That's a pretty lofty bar, right? Doesn't it seem just a little bit unreasonable that God would set the bar at that height that we would be called to be holy as He is holy? And yet God desires for us that we would be without sin and removed from it. Now you may think for a moment, well, I don't really have to return to the passions of my ignorance because I was raised in a Christian home. And so in the way that Peter's talking about ignorance, I've never really been ignorant. But we all recognize that the brokenness and the sin of this world infects the way that we think, whether raised in the church or not. And there are always temptations to return to ways in which we had learned to live uh, life apart from Christ. I don't think you'll have too much trouble identifying one of these aspects in your life. When life gets hard and stressful, when you're very anxious and fearful, and you begin to move away from God, to what do you move? To what do you draw near? This is the thing to which you you begin to place your confidence in, the thing you begin to trust in. And as you do that, you increasingly uh, give up holiness. 
you begin to become conformed to how this world runs. And to the degree that you go down that road increasingly is the degree to which you will move away from God and suffer alienation from Him in that relationship. Now this would be an impossible calling and in fact a brutal calling. We may even begin to feel we're only on the second point and this is such a calling to work. To be intentional and to labor to actually know God. And yes, it is. Right? This is... There is one voice of Scripture that trumpets the grace of God and that while you could never accomplish anything, He has reached out to you in kindness. And there is one voice of Scripture that says, now that you have been reached in kindness, you must labor to understand your salvation in fear and trembling. And you must hold those voices together. To hold one without the other is to go in a bad direction. And this is what Peter is saying. Understand your salvation. Yes, God has affected it. But now be serious about honoring what has transpired in the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ. If you think he died so that you can live the American dream, you don't know him at all. And so in what ways are you a dog returning to its vomit? Going back to an old way of living. Right? And this occurs for all of us. Boys and girls, you know this. You get in trouble for the same thing over and over and over again. You do X and you get in trouble and you say, you repent, you're disciplined, and then what do you do? You do it again. Well, so do your mommies and daddies. And so do I. And each time we do that, we're choosing to be conformed to the passions of our ignorance in this ignorant world and to move away from God rather than to move toward Him in obedience. Number three, conduct yourselves with fear, as you see in verse 17. Our third challenge says, God judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Right? This is just, you've got to love Peter in one sense. It's just hammer blow after hammer blow. Right? If you didn't feel convicted about not intentionally training your mind for action, if you didn't feel guilty about uh, failing or too often conforming to the passions of your ignorance, then on this one, right, as we consider that you conduct yourselves with fear before God, Peter reminds you that each one will stand before the living God. And God is the one who judges impartially according to your deeds. Scripture over and over again tells us that we will give account, that every person will stand before God and be judged. Now, we're guaranteed to pass through that judgment for our faith in Christ, which of course must be played out in works. But when you're tempted to sin on any given basis, when someone makes you angry and you want to punish them, or when you seek to escape, or when you love to indulge yourself because you deserve it because your life is so hard, do you also think at that moment, I will give account to God? I will stand before him, and he will judge what I have done impartially. That word impartially is scary. Again, we're not saying that you will be denied salvation for your faith in Christ, but there will be an accounting, and that should produce a healthy fear. Fear is part of a healthy and good and loving relationship. If we think about covenantal relationships in our lives, we think about a parent and a child. There's love, but in that love there is a command from the father or mother to raise the child in a certain way. And there's an obedience that should come forth from the child that they would grow 
in that relationship and in wisdom as instructed by their parent. And should there be a healthy fear of the parent for the child in the midst of that relationship? Of course. Should there be a healthy fear for you as you stand before the living God? If not, what are you playing with? If no healthy fear, and you show up before God and have not taken what you are called to and challenged to seriously, it's a dangerous road to walk. Peter, you know, as he's, as in one sense there are these hammer blows, but really I think you should hear Peter as a very loving shepherd talking to sheep who are tempted to walk away or not take their faith so seriously, right? Just to say, well, Jesus, we kind of like him, but we'll be at the temple of Artemis this Sunday. As Peter talks into that lovingly, he also kind of demonstrates why this is so important to him. Because he says to us, or writes, that our souls are purified by obedience to the truth. That's a funny phrase. That our souls are purified by obedience to the truth. That we sometimes like to think, well, really our soul is purified by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we're just awaiting its final purification and glory. But Peter has a vision that your soul is actually purified. It's actually renewed in the process of your obedience in this life. It is in the process of obedience that you actually experience more of God and your soul is renewed in that fashion as a result. I don't know about you, but that makes me want to be obedient. Right? It's not so much uh, obey or I'm going to punch you in the head. It's obey so that we can have a good and healthy relationship. It's obey so that you can be freed from the ignorant passions of this world. It's obey so that your soul can be increasingly purified from all that's contaminated it since your birth. That makes me want to take my sin seriously. And it makes me want to move toward God in obedience. And it's what enables the fourth exhortation that Peter gives which is to love one another earnestly in verse 22 from a pure heart. Our souls being increasingly purified by our obedience to the truth, we aspire to a sincere brotherly love. That we are born again uh, in Christ and knowing the love of God. You know, suddenly if we walk through this, our minds are set for action. We're not distracted by the things in this world. And we... um, we are intent not to be conformed to the passions which characterize our old selves. And we fear God, and suddenly as we're freed, we're freed up to love one another. We're suddenly liberated in time, in energy, because it takes way more time and energy avoiding God than actually being obedient. You know that, right? Who are the most restful people you'll ever meet? The most holy. And it's not because their lives are easy. It's not because they're not suffering what you may be suffering. It's because in the midst of their suffering, they're obedient. And they are not labored with the exhausting shame and guilt that those who would choose disobedience are. And they're the most peaceful people on the face of the earth. Why? Because they're intimate with Christ. They're intimate with God in the midst of what surrounds them and befalls them. This is what Peter calls his people to. You are called by God, elect, 
exile set outside of this world. Chosen for a particular purpose, to be holy as God is holy. And you're called, exhorted by Peter. So what does that mean? Okay, I'm saved. Then the, the default position of American Christianity is to say, great, I'm saved. Right? You know, I'm just waiting to collect my $200 as I pass go. And that's really it. You wonder, how in the world did we get there with letters like 1 Peter? I think really probably the only way we could have gotten there is out of gross ignorance and neglect of Scripture itself. Because when we hear it and heed it, we're reminded that what does it mean to live out your salvation? One, gird up your minds for action. Two, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Three, fear God. You're going to meet Him. And four, love one another from a pure heart. I would understand that for you that may sound like a lot of work. It may sound like a lot of labor. But again, I want to challenge you. I want you to dare to believe and to dare to move in a direction of obedience and such intentionality and putting away sin. Then I want you to realize that you, if you are not... Uh, intentionally endeavoring in these four challenges, you are the person lying on the bed with the water dripping on your head. There's no rest for you. You're weary and you're exhausted and you keep running to the wrong thing to find rest. To get up and to actually fix the roof, as all the kids knew was the right answer, is to get up and to move toward God in the way that Peter exhorts us to. Come to him this morning, repenting. Your mind has not been as intense as it should be. You have been conformed. You have not feared him and you have not loved your brother. Repent, but then know, in coming and receiving his grace at this table, you may aspire to and move towards obedience intentionally. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you that you have not left us without instruction that you have not left us to wallow in our uh, brokenness and the fight between our old self and our new self without giving us a path uh, by which to trod and to draw near to you and to experience our salvation. So we ask in humility this morning that you would indeed strengthen us by your Spirit. Would you please help us to gird up our minds for action? Would you please help us to not be conformed to the uh, passions of our ignorance? Would you help us to fear you in a healthy way and not take your grace for granted? And would you help us to love one another with a pure heart? And in this, may we know the increasing purification of our souls through our obedience. We ask for your grace in this and that you would nourish us at this table. It's in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.